Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss some of the early news filtering out from Kherson, analyse worrying updates from the Zaporizhia nuclear power station, and we look closer at recent stories from Germany with Dr. Thomas Clausen. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 3rd of November, day 253. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, and our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva. It's worth noting that some of the stories we discuss at the beginning of this episode are fast-moving and unfolded as we were recording today. We'll bring you more information tomorrow. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Good afternoon, everybody. The latest is something is happening in uh, in Herzon. So the, the, the counteroffensive there, Ukraine have been pushing for a number of weeks now, making uh, reasonable progress coming down the Dnieper River, heading down in the sort of southwesterly direction, getting ever closer to the city. There were reports over the last few weeks that, that Russia is moving civilians out of the area. Quite quite why, I'm not sure. There's a threat to the to the dam just up, up the river, which if the dam was blown, and we know that there are mines on the dam, Russian mines on the dam, if that was blown, that would totally flood the area. But there has been limited movement of Russian military personnel and equipment, partly because the bridges have gone and they've, they've got a they've got a, a a pontoon bridge which is very limited in what it can actually move across the river so there's been very limited movement of of russian personnel and equipment out of the city and out of that little uh, the little area north and north and west of the river in in Hezon, uh, oblast but just in the last in the last few minutes we're watching um we're watching a lot of social media of, of something happening in Hezon. There's reports of the Russian flag has been removed from the main administration building in the city. However, it is still being flown from other buildings around the city. There are reports of Russian checkpoints uh, that have been abandoned throughout the city. Our friend and colleague, Parik O'Brien from Channel 4, he has tweeted that, that a contact told him Quote, the troops are withdrawn at night and they also removed roadblocks. That was a contact of, of Porrocks in Hezon. So quite what this is, we're not sure. There's been a lot of talk from Russia that they are that they are going to fight for the city. It is huge, of huge symbolic relevance and, and import to Putin. 
but it would make military sense for for Russia to consolidate their their fighting power and come south south of the river. However, these these reports, unless this is some this is some sort of come on to to entice Ukraine to perhaps overextend themselves, get into the city, and and there there's a there's a trap. All this might be uh, Russia making it making a move to to remove its uh, and preserve some combat power. So we will track that one. Well, there'll be more than that, I think, as uh, as the day unfolds. We should be able to uh, bring more up to date um, tomorrow. And elsewhere, something else we should note, the UN has rejected a call by Russia for a probe into a biological weapons. So the Security Council uh, rejected a resolution drafted by Russia, which called for an investigation into its, its allegations that, that um, uh, the US is involved in developing biological weapons in Ukraine. I mean, these these accusations have been around for a long time, always, always refuted, um, no evidence put forward for them at all. I think this is just Russia, um, again, just trying to trying to muddy the waters, trying to trying to push on the diplomatic front because it's losing on the on the military front um but they 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 put this thing to the the security council the resolution for for this investigation it was thrown out it got two votes in favor russia and china three against the uk france and us all of whom have the veto and the other 10 non-permanent members of the council all abstained um i won't i won't uh, read you what the deputy russian ambassador said but you know he clearly wasn't happy um but u.s ambassador linda thomas greenfield said the u.s voted against this resolution because it is based on disinformation dishonesty bad faith and a total lack of respect for the security council uh, she said the resolution is a milestone for russia's deception and lies and no one is buying it except china um, the u.s and ukraine i mean they've always rejected these accusations the the, the u.s say they are they are pure fabrication um and there's there's nowhere it can go now. It's gone gone up to the Security Council. They've said no, and that and that's the end of it. Just one other update. Today's defence intelligence message from from British defence intelligence notes that the, the the huge amount of hardware that that Russia is losing and the, the having to replace vehicles with tanks and other infantry infantry fighting vehicles from Belarus. They said that in mid October. Russia was losing about 40 a day, 40 vehicles a day. That's about a battalion's worth of equipment every day. And, um, and there are reports that the, the, the Russian soldiers are not happy with the old um, and, and less well-maintained uh, vehicles that they're getting in their place. Now, they make the point, Defence Intelligence makes the point that, that R- Russia is very artillery-led and, and armour, armoured units, uh, and so denuding artillery ammunition and the and the logistic supply of that as we've seen over the recent months is one way of, of stalling their advance um, but also just physically they, they they do not do much um, away from uh, away from their armored vehicles so so depleting their supply of those vehicles is also having uh, having a big effect well, i mean that is that is quite huge to lose 40 a day uh, around mid october that's that's a that's a huge number no and so it's no wonder that we're seeing these very old we saw t62 tanks earlier in the summer didn't we and um uh, they're now relying on on other tanks from elsewhere including from belarus just shows how um how, how sort of empty the locker is when it comes to to hardware Thanks, Dom. Just a couple of things to add on what we're hearing out of Kherson. Christopher Miller, who's the FT's Ukraine correspondent, has tweeted a, a video that he says has been shared in, closed, in a closed telegram group, which appears to show Kherson residents on a bus cheering as they pass an abandoned Russian checkpoint. That seems to line up with something we've reported on the Telegraph Live blog, that the mayor of Alishki, nearby town to, to Herzog has said that residents have been reporting abandoned checkpoints in Chernobyvka, Stepanivka and Bilozerka. So just a little bit of extra info there from us. Francis, can I come to you next? There's also been some updates I think we need to talk about from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. 
Thanks, David, and good afternoon, everyone. It's good to be back. Yes, uh, there's we've been following obviously Zapparisa nuclear plant now for for many many months, and so any updates in this space are always interesting and significant. And just building on Dom's point about the Russian strategy around chemical warfare and making diplomatic overtures on that fact, a senior Russian official has said its forces have prevented a Ukrainian attack on the Russian-controlled Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. They say that Ukrainian forces continue to shell the power plant with Western weapons, which could lead to a global catastrophe. That's according to Russian Security Council Secretary Nikolai Petrushev, who is, of course, a close ally of President Putin. He says that Russian special forces have prevented what he said was a terrorist attack on the plants. Now, to Dom's point, we know that this is very unlikely. Russia has been kidnapping people from the site now, and some of them re-emerged, some of them still haven't. What's more likely going on here is Russia is attempting to measure the international reaction and trying to criticise the Ukrainian government on the international stage and indeed for a domestic audience. I don't think uh, there's any intention of the Ukrainian forces from our intelligence to be doing any kind of, uh, of, of attack, chemical or otherwise, on Zaporizhia. Far from it, uh, Ukraine's state nuclear company has said that Russian shelling has actually damaged the high voltage lines at the plant, which is what they see as the main cause, if there is one, of, a, of some kind of incident there. They're arguing that Russia is trying to connect the Zaporizhia power plant to its own power grid in an attempt to cripple Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Now, obviously, that would tally in more with what we've seen Russia doing, which is they see a pillar now of their new strategy going into winter to knock out the energy supplies of Ukraine in a hope to lead them down a, a desperate situation, which with international pressure would lead to some kind of peace deal. So I think that on, on balance and from what we've known so far that this Ukrainian line about Zaporizhia is inaccurate and the more accurate one is is the Ukraine one about Russian intentions there um, and as I say the, the other additional side of this is that uh, Ukraine have said that it only has about 15 days worth of fuel to run on the generators so even the generators, it's six reactors have been shut down and they still need a constant supply of electricity to keep the nuclear fuel inside cool and prevent disaster. And their concern is, is that now that the plant has been disconnected, that they don't actually have masses of energy to keep it safe. So that is a concern, which is why I think it's right to flag Zaporizhia. But I know Hamish de Bretton-Gordon will have views on this and he has already spoken this week and I'm sure we'll be able to give us an update in due course on that. Thanks, Francis. Um, Natalia Vasilyeva, can I bring you in here? I know you want to add to our observations so far on what may be happening in Kherson, but then there are also some updates on the, uh, the grain deal that Russia has rejoined. Um, can you talk us through what you've been reading? Hi, sure. Um, about Kherson, I think it's um, quite important at this time to follow what Russian occupation officials are doing and saying in Kherson. And among them, uh, Kirill Strimausov, who's been one of the faces of Russian occupation in Kherson, uh, has been posting a series of videos this morning, looking quite anxious as he first was pictured in a car full of luggage, 
it's not clear whose luggage was that. And in the second video, he it was a selfie video he took on a street of Kherson in which he sounded a bit desperate when he spoke about the residents of Kherson who are refusing to evacuate. He didn't speak about the Ukrainian counteroffensive as such, but he was showing people queuing to buy their groceries, saying that they have been, uh, quote, irresponsible, that they have not heeded the officials' calls and they refused to evacuate. So clearly that's, that's a sign that something is going on that you know he feels that he needs to record those videos one after another to get people to evacuate separately as you've just mentioned uh, another big thing that that happened um, in the past uh, 24 hours is uh, Russia's decision to resume its participation in the so-called grain deal which is one of the uh, one of landmark if not the only landmark agreement that Russia has signed up to during this war, uh, which was quite a diplomatic victory for the Turkish president Recep Tayyip Erdogan. As uh, you might remember, Russia early on in the war blocked Ukrainian ports and basically didn't allow dozens and dozens of ships to exit Ukraine and to sail across the Black Sea, uh, delivering those agricultural supplies, many of which were uh, destined to some of the world's poorest countries. And we were at a point this summer when the UN spoke about the possibility of famine across Africa, across some of the poorest nations, if those uh, supplies are still disrupted. Now, Turkey helped to mediate the deal, but Russia signed on the deal in July, saying that it would not target grain shipments from Ukraine. And just uh, over the weekend, when um, ships of the Russian Black Sea fleet were damaged in a suspected Ukrainian attack, Russian officials said that they were withdrawing from the deal. And it basically lasted for four days. Strangely enough, the ships never stopped sailing. Turkey said that it would it would still think that the deal is on, that those shipments are needed. And um, several ships defied Russia's decisions and had sailed across the Black Sea on um, Monday and Tuesday, just before the Russian Defense Ministry came out yesterday saying that it has finally received what it described as security guarantees from Ukraine and was ready to rejoin the deal, which is uh, quite an interesting development per se, not only concerning the grain market, and we saw grain prices immediately go down on this announcement, but also it's it's quite it was quite an interesting spectacle to watch because Russia had threatened to disrupt those shipments, but four days later apparently it didn't find any other tools to influence that and apparently wasn't ready to attack the ship. So we just decided that it wasn't in its interest to, to block it. So they have rejoined the deal. And uh, now we're hearing about several dozen ships that have been blocked in the Black Sea now sailing sailing south uh, to the Bosphorus and um, onto the Mediterranean Sea. Thanks, Natalia. Can I ask, have you got a sense of what the reaction from Russian media is to, to this U-turn? First of all, to, to pull out of the deal and then, then, to, then to come back in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's been quite a surprise because Russia walked out of the deal just four days before it said that it was back on. Uh, so it was quite surprising. Um, if we talk about state TV, which loyally towards the official line they made sure that there was nothing out of ordinary and that you know russia always wins and 
it won this time, big time. But if we talk about some of Russia's hardline war correspondents and uh, hardline commentators, they were quite livid. They sounded really angry yesterday, saying that, you know, essentially accusing the government of setting off Russia's national interests for the sake of doing business rather than, you know, defend, defending Russia's interests in Ukraine. So that was something quite interesting to watch. Thanks, Natalia. Um, Francis, can I bring you in here? There's an a meeting between the foreign ministers from the G7 meeting today in Germany. Can you just quickly talk us through what's on the agenda? Sure. Well, yeah, just staying in the political realm. It's a very very short update, really. But again, I think it's significant because it just speaks to this continuing Western pressure and indeed support for Ukraine from the wealthiest uh, uh, Western democracies. So as you say, foreign ministers from the G7 will meet today in Germany to discuss further support for Ukraine following recent Russian attacks on the energy infrastructure that, of course, have caused the the widespread power cuts that we've been talking about now for, for about the past couple of weeks. Of course, as well as the invasion of Ukraine expecting to dominate the two-day meeting, the US Secretary of State Antony Blinken is expected to talk about China's increasingly assertive role on the world stage and the protests in Iran. And indeed, you'll remember that report that came out several weeks ago now in the US that said that as significant as as the war in Ukraine is, the real long-term concern is China. So I think it's significant that whilst Ukraine will be the lead agenda item at the G7 today and tomorrow, the fact that China is there and, of course, what's going on in Iran speaks to this broader trend of a widening out of of a new more significant struggle that it seems the Western world has been woken up to by what's happened in Ukraine. Thanks, Francis. Uh, Dom, I know you had a couple more updates. Can you tell us about your experience last night? You were you were on the same stage as Vadim Pristaiko, the um, Ukrainian ambassador to the UK. Yeah, so I was uh, moderating an event last night. Um, I interviewed Vadim Pristaiko, Ukraine's ambassador here in the UK. I also by video link, we we uh, Igor Smelensky dialed in. He's a, a businessman, one of the big business leaders in in Ukraine. He dialed in from I think Kiev, but somewhere somewhere in Ukraine. He he runs Ukraposta, the the national um, postal service, which uh, is responsible not only for for all postal deliveries, which is you know is is, is important, but also uh, those the amazing stamps that we we've seen so much about. Another one coming out on Thursday, a really good one. Um, it showed us the design last night, um, marking the the attack on the Kirsch Bridge. So keep an eye out for that tomorrow. And also, Ukraposta um, delivers three million pensions a month in cash across the across the country, including into the occupied areas. So absolutely critical service. So that was that was fascinating. I'm going to uh, going to put some notes out about that last night. Um, but no, I spoke I spoke with uh, with Mr. Prostyko. Uh, this was um, it was an event run by Boyden, the, the leadership. Um, consulting firm so they got, they got us all together a lot of business leaders here in london and i asked um, i asked mr Pristaiko, uh, i said at the start of the start of the war i mean no one's been tested in the way that, that, that the events after february the 24th demanded how did he know that uh, that his president was the was the right guy for the moment and he said he said he went uh, he was actually at the time mr Pristaiko was was the head of ukraine's mission to nato when he was called back by president Zelensky and asked to be foreign minister and then subsequently the ambassador here um, and Mr. Prostyko said he went. He went in to meet the meet the president, and instead of greeting him, he just said he came straight out and said, "Do you know what you're doing?" And Mr. Zelensky apparently looked at him and said, "I guess so." And that was it. <laughs> that was, that was sort of sealed the sealed the deal. But um, the ambassador was very open. Actually, he was very very.
very clear. He said there are people who say the whole world is with Ukraine, but that's not true. He said the whole world is not behind us. We have partners in the West, but most of the nations in the South and the East do not understand us. They don't want to engage. They just want to stay away from this. Sometimes they have no idea what's going on, and sometimes they are preoccupied with other things. We understand that support is not expected to be just given, he said. Um, And he said, he went on, um, some nations are waking up to the level of support that's required at the same time as suffering high prices of gas, waves of Ukrainian refugees and the nuclear threat. He said these nations are coming to, to support us at the same time as being threatened um, and said it's, it, this support is not a constant. It's not a given. They don't just assume it's there. And he and his team have to work each and every day um, to, to, to keep that level of support up. I thought it was very, very open. And then we, I asked him about how, how realistic is it that if Ukraine ejects Russian forces in their entirety from from all of Ukraine's land, that that uh, what happens then? You know, is there going to be a revolution in? Uh, will Putin be unseated? Will there be any uh, military escalation or what have you? And he said some Ukrainians would like to go all the way to the Kremlin, burn it down, and have a selfie. <laughs> but most of us understand we don't actually need to uh, to do anything inside Russia. Uh, he said everything can change. We're realistic. But if we manage to push them out of our land, we will stop at the border and tell them, now it's your problem. If you're not happy with what you've achieved, if you're not happy with what your great leader told you, and now you've been humiliated and lost so many people, deal with that yourselves. The final point is, he said the problem with Russia is it does not have the mechanism in parliament, uh, i.e. more than one party or a free press, which allows them to let the steam out of the system, his words. And he said each time they reinforce the system, they are, they are very good at consolidating their efforts, but each time they take it to the point where everything breaks down, and this will happen again. So really quite stark language there from Mr. Pristaiko, saying that, that um, on the, the course that, that the war is charting at the, at the moment, he, he foresees, um, I mean, he didn't use the words regime change, he didn't, he didn't sort of say that there will be a re- revolution, but I just, I mean, that last point there, he said, uh, Russia, they take it to the point where everything breaks down and this will happen again. I think that's quite um, quite telling. But yeah, I'm going to pop something on um, online a little bit later. But no, very, very open open chat uh, with, with him and, and Mr. Smolensky. Fascinating people. Really, really interesting to hear the, um, the way these guys have adjusted their leadership styles in the face of the of the war and the, and the business environment inside Ukraine, how to keep it going and, and what the priorities will be for, for rebuilding afterwards. Uh, fascinating stuff. Thanks, Tom. Just um, quickly, Natalia, um, can I ask? I mean, what do you what do you make of that characterization of, of the issues within uh, the the, the, well, the structure of the Russian government made by Prishnaiko to, to Dom? Do, 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 do you think that's a, a fair take on on what might be happening? Well, obviously, we have seen Evgeny Prigozhin, the founder of the Wagner military contractor and the leader of Chechnya, ele- elevated to the point of having the unrivaled influence on uh, in what concerns the Russian operation in Ukraine, as the Kremlin calls it. But still, at the end of the day, Putin is the person who calls the shots and um, he's the one who makes all the important decisions, whatever um, uh, other people may say or do. Thanks, Natalia. Well, you just mentioned Yevgeny Prigozhin. Let's talk about him a little bit. You wrote a fascinating story about... Uh, uh, a sort of challenge he might have made to Putin when, in which he had some complimentary words to say about Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president. Can you uh, explain to us what he said? Sure. Um, well, first off, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin has been increasingly vocal and public. And this is someone who for years sued journalists for 
linking him to the Wagner military contractor, which is something that he is now proud of, and he doesn't um, doesn't hide the fact that he is the one bankrolling it. He's been quite public in, in recent weeks and months. Uh, filming um, himself uh, talking to recruits at Russian prisons, uh, talking to military contractors who had returned from the front line. And in his latest intervention, he was asked um, about his opinions of Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, and he um, called him, quote, strong and confident leader, uh, which is quite extraordinary because um, people who followed the war closely might remember that um, Kremlin officials... um, even before the war started, dismissed uh, uh, President Zelensky as a clown, as they called him, um, um, in reference to his previous uh, c- career in TV comedy. And uh, in the first week of the invasion, uh, Vladimir Putin himself um, indirectly referred to um, the incessant Russian state TV narrative that somehow the Ukrainian president is a drug user. Um, and uh, Vladimir Putin even used the word junkie without calling Zelensky by name, but it was clear that he was referring to him. So that's obviously quite interesting that uh, Prigozhin just came out and say and said that he has a respect for Zelensky. Um, and um, uh, in response to possible criticism, um, he said that it's perfectly normal to be complimentary of your enemy because you need, you need to have respect towards someone that you're fighting for, especially that you've been fighting them for such a long time. And, uh, you know, you, you need to hand it to them where they're doing a good job. So obviously that, that's, quite, that's quite a different line from Vladimir Putin. Again, it doesn't um, challenge him in, uh, in a major way. It doesn't, he's, he doesn't go around saying, you know, let's stop the war. It's a bad idea. Uh, but these are sort of um, a small but significant sort of stylistical differences that we're seeing between him and the Kremlin. And obviously he feels confident enough to, uh, to sell, say those things in public, unlike uh, the overwhelming majority of Russian officials who wouldn't dare to uh, contradict Putin publicly on a, any subject, you know, pretty much. That's fascinating. Thank you so much for that, Natalia. Francis, uh, I know you've got one more update for us before we can start summing up. Uh, So, Francis Sternley. Thanks, David. Back in August, I reported a story about how Russia was facing mass migration abroad of large numbers of its Jewish population, with at least one in eight leaving the country then since the war began. Indeed, it was quite astonishing numbers, that are, predictions that around 20,000 of Russia's estimated total of 165,000 Jewish people had left since the war began, as I say. So very, very large. But there's been an update in this space which I think speaks to the atmosphere in in Russia at the moment and the broader concerns. So there's been an EU report that has been released that said that disinformation and hatred against Jews has flourished online throughout Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, And I'll quote from the report directly. The coronavirus pandemic and Russia's aggression against Ukraine further fueled anti-Semitism, which remains a serious problem in our society goes on the risks of fake narratives and disinformation stoking up anti-semitism caused by russia misusing terms such as nazi and genocide so 
I just wanted to mention this because, as I say, I think it speaks to a a concerning trend within Russia itself about how it is defining this war and how certain communities within Russia are reacting to that. Of course, President Zelensky himself is Jewish. And as I say, it's not just something that is only narrowly taking place in Russia, but has broader implications for what's happening in Europe at the moment, as it mentions there that the COVID pandemic has also partly shaped this concerning narrative. But I thought it was worth drawing attention to because we're often speculating on this podcast about what the atmosphere is like in Russia and what the Russian population are are thinking and 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 saying and I think that sometimes you just got to look at the at the numbers and the responses and as I say there has been a very very sharp noteworthy migration of Jewish people leaving Russia, as well as many of those young middle class people that we've talked about at length in the past. So even if we're not entirely certain as to what the elite is thinking, the elite is saying, we can say with confidence, I think, that there are many, many percentages of the population in Russia who are very concerned about what's going on to the extent that they have actually left the country. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Thank you, Francis and Natalia and Dom. Um, Francis, do you want to go first? Uh, What will you be thinking of and looking at over the next few days? Well, it's an interesting development that I've been following from the Ukrainian perspective. They, the authorities have said that in Kyiv, they are preparing a thousand heating points throughout the city in case its district heating ser- system is disabled by the continuous Russian attacks that we were talking about earlier. Vitaly Klitschko has announced this and it obviously comes on the back of around 40% of Ukraine's energy infrastructure being um, brought down. And I think it talks about the preparation that is going into the worst case scenarios in Kyiv. And they clearly do think that this is a worst case scenario. And obviously what these heating points would be is places that people can go if they lose all access to heating in their apartment blocks, in municipal buildings. Essentially, these is these are emergency places where people can go um, to be provided with with heat and energy and water if if worse comes to it. So um, a thousand heating points obviously is no insignificant number. Um, But as I say, it's preparing for the worst. And I think it also speaks to just how serious this winter could well be. And I think that it will be now uh, no doubt something that will be discussed extensively at the G7 today and tomorrow, just how much support additional support can be offered by Western powers at this crucial moment because, you know, as I say, winter hasn't really started in earnest yet. And the fact that there are already these kind of concerns about power rationing, about people being forced to leave their homes and stay in these heating air, heated areas um, just speaks to, I think, how serious things could get. So I thought that um, it was worth referencing as a, as a final thought today. Well, thank you, Francis. Uh, Natalia Vasileva, what will you be uh, looking at and looking into over the next few days? Hmm. Just to add to what Francis was saying, um, um, and I just wanted to say that it's not just Kiev that's bracing itself for um, a blackout, for, for a massive blackout that would disable parts of the power grid or all of it. Um, uh, I just watched quite an extraordinary video from Kharkiv, from um, uh, Ukraine's second largest city in the east, um, where the mayor was touring um, uh, local schools, and he was in one school where he... Uh, was showing power generators, um, wood stoves that were built and installed in that school. 
in uh, um, in case the power grid is disabled. And what really struck me um, was the fact that you know there was nothing dramatic in his tone and the way he he talked about it. It it, it wasn't like you know how awful things are. We're we're, we're having to rely on um, uh, wood fires and maybe we'll have to do it in the in the coming um, winter. But he sounded very matter of fact and very business-like about it you know he just said that you know we, we, we don't know what's going to happen like what if we don't get any heating this this winter we need to be prepared this is going to be one of the heating points so that that is indeed a very uh, big concern and not not for kiev but but for the rest of the country and i would say not just even for uh the east and the uh, center that has been targeted by uh, Russian artillery that would be within the range, but also uh, we talk about places in western Ukraine that have been hit by um, cruise missiles, which are even more difficult for Russia to reach, but still officials there are also making um, similar preparations. Um, in terms of looking ahead, um, I would definitely um, um, keep an eye on Kherson, and uh, it's quite fascinating to see uh, what's happening there with the uh, local authorities, uh, Russia-controlled authorities, uh, ordering an evacuation. And, you know, it's quite a symbolic thing because Kherson uh, is the only regional capital of Ukraine that has been firmly under Russian control um, pretty much since the first of the second week of the invasion. And um, it would be a real embarrassment for Russia if it was to lose it, um, um, whether it would be losing it um, uh, as a result of hostilities or simply um, withdrawing, um, uh, you know, Kherson was one of the cities, and its a self-appointed leader was one of the people who was at the Kremlin less than a month ago, signing the annexation papers and saying things like "We're here for good," that Russia is in Kherson for good. So obviously, um, Russia withdrawing from Kherson or. Um, you know, uh, lowering lowering its flag from from Herson, um, it would be quite quite a landmark things to do. A fortnight ago, we reported on an extraordinary story from Germany that the head of its national cybersecurity agency had been sidelined over allegations he kept excessively close ties to Russia. Given the fast moving nature of events, it's easy to report on such a story and swiftly move on. But we wanted to look more deeply into it. As such. Last week, Francis Sternley spoke again to Dr. Thomas Clausen, who works at a liberal think tank in Berlin, to examine this story in more detail and to take the temperature of current German attitudes to the war in Ukraine. This is their conversation. Thomas, thank you again for joining us. It's been a few weeks since we last spoke and eventful ones, I think it's fair to say, for Germany. To start us off, what can you tell us about the curious case of Mr. Schoenbern? Well, everything started two weeks ago when the well-known TV comedian Jan Böhmermann, who's something like the uh, German John Oliver, uh, published an investigative report on the rather dubious company Protelion. And Protelion provides some sort of cybersecurity solutions for German businesses and institutions, and they focus specifically on oil and gas, logistics, healthcare, and critical infrastructure. Now, Böhmermann and his investigative team of policy network analytics found out that Protelion is associated with the Russian company Infotex that was reportedly founded by the former KGB agent Andrei Chapchaev in 1991. And the report even showed a doorbell in Berlin. So if you wanted to visit Protelion in their Berlin office, you had to ring at Infotex. Infotex, of course, is sanctioned by the US and it's obviously a very shady 
business. Now, Böhmermann then focused on uh, Anne Schönbohm, who's the head of the BSI. That's the federal agency that is responsible for cybersecurity. Uh, it's attached to the Ministry of the Interior. And 10 years ago, Schönbohm uh, was also the co-founder of the so-called Cybersecurity Council EV. Now, uh, the EV is important. It means Eingetragener Verein. So it's a private association, something of a club and not a state agency. And the Cybersecurity Council EV is different, therefore, from the Cybersecurity Council that is attached to the Federal Ministry of Defense. And this is not a mistake in translation. They are exactly the same in German. So it's, we have one, the official Cybersecurity uh, Council of the federal government, and then this rather obscure association. But it gets worse. According to the website of the Cybersecurity Council EV, so the association, and the list has now been removed, But they included basically a large police union amongst their members, the Federal Ministry of Health, insurance companies, energy companies, banks, pharmaceutical companies, the Association of German Firefighters, but also Huawei and Protelion, because its predecessor, Infotex, joined in June 2020. And of course, Infotex and Protelion are one and the same company, according to this investigation. And now to round everything off, as if this wasn't uh, bad enough, The current president of the Cybersecurity Council, EV, is Hans-Wilhelm Dünn, a Christian Democrat from Brandenburg, who already two years ago was quoted on record as having had contact with all relevant players in the realm of cyber communication, including Russia and China. And when he was pressed by the journalists at the time, he confirmed that this, of course, included contacts with Russian intelligence agencies. Um, and indeed, he had attended a forum organized by the National Association of the International Information Security, NAIIS, in 2019. And that's a Moscow-based organization with ties to Russian intelligence. Now, there's another bit of irritating information from uh, Böhmermann's investigation. In September of this year, Schönbohm, the head of the BSI, addressed this Cybersecurity Council EV even though the Federal Ministry of the Interior demanded from all members of the Federal Cybersecurity, of all its members, to dissociate themselves from the uh, Federal Cybersecurity Council EV, because they were basically worried that people would confuse the names. And of course, it's very easy to confuse them. So that's basically the story. And the result was that Nancy Faeser, who's the Minister of the Interior, released Arno Schönbohm. He wasn't sacked, so some uh, British newspapers also reported that he was fired, but this is actually quite a tricky thing to do due to the German civil service regulations, but he was, for the time being, prohibited from conducting official business. So that's the, basically the story as it aired on television, but there are some problems. For a start, there's no evidence that Schönbohm himself had contact with Russian intelligence agencies, and he had left this dubious cybersecurity council EV before Infotex or Protelion joined. And then there's an IT security expert from uh, Heise, so one of the main uh, IT uh, news portals in Germany, Jürgen Schmidt. And he has emphasized that Schönbohm might simply have fallen prey to some sort of court intrigue um, because his affiliation to this club was well known. Um, and the gathering in September was also attended by a senior civil servant of the Federal Ministry of the Interior. And Schönbohm's attendance was also approved by the ministry. And more importantly, there are now reports, uh, for instance, by Der Spiegel, um, that Böhmermann has actually interfered with ongoing operations by the foreign and domestic intelligence agencies of Germany. So, I mean, in, in a way, it would have been extremely strange if they had not noticed Protelion's doorbell and their affiliation with Infotex. 
I mean, everything was in the open. And it's also not really clear that Proteleon is really this huge company with a substantial market share in Germany. And when it came to certifying Proteleon software, the BSI actually did quite a good job and they did not grant them a certificate. So they were saying, well, because of the ties to, or the potential ties to Russian intelligence, uh, we will not grant them one of our security certificates. So at the end, it might be more of a story of internal conflicts amongst and within various state institutions. Um, but it's very much a developing story. And given the sort of intelligence dimension, it's unlikely that we will learn the full picture. But maybe it's also a bit of a distraction to focus on the spy novel side of the story, because the striking aspect, to me at least, is that so much of the tale already is in the open. And it's quite, I mean, especially this meeting in 2019, where someone of the Cybersecurity Council EV attended a gathering and signed a pledge to cooperate with Russian counterparts. So I think it's fair to say this is a big story. What's the reaction been like in Germany itself? It's quite a big story, but also it's quite difficult to place. And at the beginning, I think the headlines are quite, quite nice. A TV comedian finds out that there are ties of a security company to Russia, and he demands a resignation of the head of the cybersecurity agency in Germany, and he has to step down. But I think now it's, it's I mean, it, it's not quite that easy of a story. And it's, it doesn't, it, I don't think, and uh, I would agree here with the, the IT experts like Jürgen Schmidt who say, well, Schönboom isn't the main story. First of all, we need to focus on the bigger picture. You know, when it comes to cybersecurity, it is important to recall that Western democracies, including Germany, have faced repeated attacks. You know, the German parliament was targeted in 2015 and the run-up also to the federal election uh, two years later. And those attacks seem to have originated in Russia, although it's always quite difficult to trace uh, these types of uh, things. And we've seen attacks on city administrations, judicial institutions, healthcare providers, etc., and of course, there's also the, the international context, you know, the cyber attacks on Estonia in 2007 and so forth. And I would say when it comes to the reaction in Germany to this story, um, the main point is not so much how to deal with this particular personal question, but rather is Germany in a way prepared to take the steps that it, uh, Estonia took in 2007? And I think it's not clear that we are as prepared as Estonia is at the moment. Secondly, I think the bigger story in the last couple of weeks is probably the attempt by Costco, so a Chinese shipping group, to buy a major stake in one of Hamburg's container terminals. So six relevant ministries argued against such an acquisition, um, but Scholz wanted to press through. At the moment, it's, it's, there no decisions have been made, but even the entire debate seems quite remarkable. So the port infrastructure clearly is uh, extremely critical to our economy and to the society as a whole. And handing over such an important piece of infrastructure, even if it's only one part of a minor terminal, seems quite remarkable in times of Zeitenwende. Absolutely. And I would point listeners to the last time that you and I spoke, Thomas, which was day 169, where we spoke in more detail about some of these these issues, particularly how Germany got hooked on, on Russian energy. So just moving on and zooming out slightly, if we could, onto the current situation in Germany itself. How would you measure the mood with regard to the war in Ukraine at the moment? Well, at the moment, first of all, the traffic light coalition is under strain. They had a difficult uh, election in Lower Saxony. The share of the right-wing AFD doubled, while the liberals, to I'm uh, close, were kicked out of the regional parliament. And of course, that changes also the configuration within the coalition. 
There's widespread worry about gas and electricity prices and the future of the German industry. But above all, of course, uh, Putin's war in Ukraine is still very much in the headlines. We have all seen the horrific criminal attacks on civilians that are being perpetrated by the Russian forces. And we see also an ongoing debate on the on the future of German foreign policy and on the nature of the support uh, to Ukraine. And of course, one of the big stories has been this ongoing gas saga. And I know there's been numerous heated conversations taking place between Emmanuel Macron and his German counterpart. Just wondering if you could offer a little bit more insight onto the latest on that. So first of all, it seems that at the moment, the situation is sort of under control. The storage capacities are being used. But there is, of course, a huge debate on the attack uh, on North Stream 2. Some people uh, say, especially on the political boundaries, insinuate that it wasn't Russia. But of course, it's been clear that if, if one looks at the bigger picture, that German critical infrastructure, including gas supply, is very much still in the focus of, uh, of Russia. Um, we've also seen another attack on German infrastructure, and that was when someone uh, cut a few vital train cables in the north of Germany, which sabotage train services for some hours. And that's and there's, of course, a question of regarding how well we are prepared to deal with repeated attacks on civilian and uh, potentially military infrastructure. But I think when it comes to gas, not that much has changed compared to when we last spoke. There are still huge worries when it comes to the ability of the industry to um, find new sources of gas, especially not just for energy purposes, but also regarding gas as a raw material. But nothing has changed when it comes to sort of turning away from uh, Russian supplies because everything is closed down and I think it will remain for a long time to come. So just looking now to the diplomatic situation, there's been quite a few interesting developments in this space in, in recent days. I'm just wondering whether you could fill us in a bit on that and perhaps particularly President Steinmeier's visit to Kiev. So Steinmeier's visit to Kiev is quite interesting, of course, given that um, there was a huge prelude. Steinmeier has been seen very critically in Ukraine, especially due to his role as a German foreign minister and his participation in the Minsk process, which was seen by many in Ukraine as being not that helpful and being maybe a bit too sympathetic to Russia. There's also the personal relationship with Sergei Lavrov. He got an honorary doctorate from Yekaterinburg, etc., and then he was meant to visit Kiev uh, in spring, but there was some sort of slightly unclear controversy. It seemed that he was being disinvited. And now he wanted to visit again, but said, well, maybe due to security worries, he can't. But finally, um, the visit is taking place and hopefully it will at least mark one step in a rather difficult process of strengthening and maybe readjusting the relationship between Ukraine and Germany Maybe the, diff the, the second part of the story is also that uh, Andrei Melnik has now been replaced by Alexei Makayev as the Ukrainian ambassador in Berlin. Uh, Melnik was very vocal and at times highly critical of the German government and various other actors. And given the complacency and indeed to some degree the complicity of some members of the German elite in paving the ground for Putin's war of aggression, I think this was very much necessary. So Melnik drove home the message that 5,000 helmets are not enough um, he has often been described as undiplomatic, but I would rather argue that he redefined how diplomacy can look like at a time when one's country is subjected to a brutal war of aggression. Makayev, uh, at least for now, seems to be slightly uh, softer spoken and maybe 
we did see the next phase of German-Ukrainian relations. For example, Bärbel Bass, the president of the German parliament, was given one of the highest orders of merit by President Zelensky. And there's currently a huge conference taking place in Berlin on a Marshall Plan for Ukraine, where Germany is also playing um, an important role. And just thinking, you've spoken in the past about the Social Democrats and their attitude towards the war when it began. And there's been some interesting developments with regard to the remarks by its chairman. Just wondering if you could fill us in on that. Yes, so the bigger picture was always that the SPD has a very troubled relationship with Russia, especially there's a huge faction that's still very much uh, enthralled by the idea of Willy Brandt and to some extent even Egon Barr's Eastern policy that paved the ground for reconciliation and German unity. And then more recently, we have in particular the special relationship between Gerhard Schröder, the former chancellor, and Vladimir Putin himself. And the last time we talked, we also looked into the peculiar relationships around Nord Stream 2, etc. But of course, the SPD is not a monolithic party, and there seems to be in recent weeks some movement regarding sort of the onset of a reckoning. It's the very first steps that we can witness at the moment. Last week, the current chairman of the SPD, Lars Klingbeil, gave a talk in a SPD um, party forum where he said, well, the world from before February the 24th does no longer exist. And, quote, the Russian regime around Putin had become increasingly repressive and aggressive, even revisionist. And in the search for a common ground, Klingbeil said, we overlooked what separated us. That was a mistake. And then he went on to list four major mistakes, including an incorrect perception of Putin's Russia, increasing energy dependence, and a lack of appreciation of the perspectives of Eastern and Central European partners. And he finally concluded that it is now necessary to organize security in the face of Russia, not together with Russia. So uh, within a party that prided itself on some sort of equidistance between Washington and Moscow, saying we need to talk about security against Russia and not uh, alongside Russia is, is quite a remarkable step. I don't really think that these uh, positive developments are enough. And we talked about all these mistakes already half a year ago. And there is, of course, a question of why now and why did it take so long for these very basic insights to, to break through. Um, so we need to continue to talk about weapons delivery, about maintaining support for Ukraine, even in the face of Putin's threats. And eventually, we will also have to come to terms with the deeper roots of the crisis, including the responsibility of individual politicians, parties, and of individual institutions. So when it came to accommodating Putin's Russia, and this is going to be a difficult process, and we are only at the very beginning of this process, I would say. Well, staying on that theme then, do you think that Merkel and, and Schultz have acknowledged the errors of the past fully in, in, in partly to, to reshape the German approach to not only this war, but the threats posed more broadly? I don't think so. So Merkel has now made a few isolated statements and it always seems that uh, the, her strategy is now to say she she was always uh, very aware of uh, the threat that Putin posed, but given the circumstances and the knowledge that one had at the time, these were still the correct steps. And especially when it comes to the energy dependence, but also when it comes to sort of this type of cooperation with certain Russian institutions and this cybersecurity uh, council EV that we talked about earlier. I mean, it's just one example of an obscure organization where leading figures can take place 
uh, in forums that are also attended by members of the Russian intelligence networks, etc. And there seems to be no clear perception that one needs to be much more careful and perceptive regarding the threats coming from, from Russia and, of course, China. And Merkel, I think she doesn't go far enough, in my view, to come to terms with the mistakes. And also, I think the media, in a way, uh, needs to uh, ask themselves uh, some tough questions because Merkel and, and Scholz and the Grand Coalition and so forth, they weren't acting against the, the spirit of the times, against huge media backlash. But rather, I would say the backdrop was that the sort of equidistance uh, between Moscow and Washington was something that was fitting quite neatly to an image that German society had of itself. And this is, of course, something that we also need to, to reflect on. Just staying on that, on that topic then, I mean, looking at the bigger picture and, and the historical approach, you're a historian like training, like myself. What's your feeling at this moment? What historical insights would you offer on what's been going on in recent times? Well, I attended an interesting talk by Andreas Wersching yesterday in the context of the Willy Brandt Foundation. And one of the things that Wersching, who's the head of the Institute for Contemporary History in Berlin and Munich, and he said, well, it's quite difficult actually to, at the moment to learn from history because it's so very different from, for example, the Cold War. And he made the argument that during the Cold War, both the East and the West sort of lived in the same time and sort of had the shared understanding of the time, the age, and the challenges, including the threat of nuclear war. So currently, he said, well, we are sort of living in the future, or at least we, we have our global liberal ideas of history. And Putin is sort of wanting to drag history back to the depths of the 19th and 20th centuries with ethnic nationalism, great power politics, where the use of force and war is perfectly accepted. And it's quite difficult now as a historian to, to judge the situation because it's a situation that we did not have before. And it's very different from the Cold War in that sense. And another bit of historical analysis uh, from recent days that I found quite interesting is that one of the former federal presidents, Joachim Gauck, who was also the head of the uh, institution that came to terms with the Stasi uh, files, so the files from the former East German Secret Service. And he said that Putin basically has a vision or basically fuses Leninism and Russian imperialism. So the idea that if you have power, you need to hold it, this Kto the it's, its power is all about who can suppress whom, you can never let go, etc. So this type of communist secret service ideology that came from Lenin through Stalin to etc. To, um, to Vladimir Putin in Dresden, but also he, he has this vision of Russian imperialism, of the Ruski Mir, where Ukraine as an independent nation simply doesn't exist. And that's a very dangerous concoction. And again, it's one that's not coming out of one particular historical tradition, but that fuses at least two very dangerous uh, ingredients. That's very interesting. And just one final question, because you and I were speaking about this before before we started recording. I know you, you asked a question about how... Russia views this war and how perhaps some academics are rather naive in their approach. Just interested in your perspective on that and what, what you asked. Well, what we see is that there are still some 
professors and uh, members of talk shows in Germany who, for example, speak of the need to accommodate Russian interests and to find a diplomatic solution. And of course, I'm, we are all in favor of diplomacy. We all, I, I mean, I, I don't think that anyone wants to uh, march on Moscow and we certainly don't want nuclear war. But what these people fail to take into account, and it needs to be said that they unfortunately also have quite some resonance within the wider German public is that it's at the present it's very difficult to uh, even think of a diplomatic solution because if we look at Ukraine through Russia's eyes, it's a nation that they want to destroy by means of, I mean, I would say genocide. So we, I mean, we have the United Nations Convention on Genocide. It's very clear on what constitutes a genocide, include, it specifically names the deportation of children And that's exactly what we see on Russian state television at the moment. So the idea that it's sort of it's possible to find a balance of interests at the moment is, is quite difficult to fathom and certainly not a view that I would say fully takes into account the right to self-determination and also the right to existence of the Ukrainian nation. And it's quite worrisome that this basic fact hasn't been taken on even by some members of the intellectual elite. And I think that's something that we've seen not only in Germany, but also along the rest more broadly, particularly in, in America as well. But that's all we've got time for. Thomas, thank you so much for your insights as ever. Fascinating. Pleasure as always. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.